that for a descriptive word. The mongrel collection that compromises my local church and every other such gathering in God's name. God takes a risk, doesn't he? By entrusting us with the message, and not only that, the embodiment of that message, the gospel, and how we treat each other, how we come together in worship, how we go and serve others. He has entrusted us with that responsibility, and it is an awesome responsibility. And just by that very fact alone, we are going to face challenges in trying to live out our mission to the world in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and being, in many ways, Jesus in the flesh. And we have already looked at two of those challenges already. Last week, just by way of reminder, we looked at the fact that we may be, and most likely will be, suffering for doing what is right. That as a church, that there will be times that we will suffer for doing what is right. And for no other reason in that we are doing what's right. And we will face opposition as a, as a reality of it. And just by way of review, I love this quote. I'm going to share it again. I shared it last Sunday. I'm going to share it this Sunday. And it says this. Persecution for Christians is not a possibility. It's a promise. It's not a maybe. It's a surely. Following Jesus can mean finding the trouble you've been looking for. And if you ever face a time in which you experience persecution, just remember this, when we became Christians, whether you and I realized this at the time, we signed up for it. We signed up for it. We signed up for the possibility and perhaps even the certainty of being persecuted. I bet you that doesn't always sell well at an evangel evangel evangelistic, excuse me, uh, gathering in which someone wants to share the gospel with you and wants you to accept Jesus Christ, oftentimes that's not part of the message, is it? It isn't accept Jesus and you're going to face perhaps some of the hardest trials in your life. You're going to probably face persecution. You're probably going to face alienation. You're probably going to face hardship that you've never experienced before. Follow Jesus. How much would that message sell? Probably not very much. And I get it. There is unbelievable benefit for us knowing and following Jesus. The gospel message gives us certain things that are wonderful and beautiful, eternal life, and most importantly, a life with Jesus, and most importantly, the opportunity for us to be transformed and be renewed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And yet what we don't oftentimes sell or rather share, in my opinion, is the reality is in that it is an incredibly, can be an incredibly difficult journey. This morning, we're going to look at a third challenge, and I want to frame today's message with a study that was done by Barna and Arizona Christian University out of Phoenix in 2021, and it found that today there are 176 million Americans who claim to be Christians. Now, there's approximately, what, 350 million people in our country, give or take, right? So pretty much a majority in this country, claim to be Christians. That's about 69-ish, maybe, percent of the population. Yet only, it found, 6% of U.S. adults, which is a 9% of those identify as a Christian, possess a biblical worldview. All right? And, and the question is, what's a biblical worldview? Well, the study's going to share a little bit about what it believes is a biblical worldview. But believing the Bible to be accurate and reliable, among other convictions. 
61% of those who self-identify as Christians affirm that I believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect, and just creator of the universe who still rules the universe today. Large majorities of self-identified Christians also report many beliefs not in harmony with biblical teaching, according to the survey. These include this, the following. 72% of those surveyed argue, Christians, by the way, self-professing Christians, 72% argue that people are basically good. 66% say that having faith matters more than which faith you pursue. 64%, this is Christians, say that all religious faiths are of equal value. 58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. Finally, 57% believe in karma. Right? Believe in karma. That's self-professing Christians. Now, I share that with you because today's challenge, um, and I've titled the message a little bit differently than what's on the bulletins, all right? The bulletin is fake news. Um, not entirely. I'm just kidding. Um, today's message that I've entitled it is the challenge number three that, it, that the church can face, including our own church, that the local churches can face, is behaving like the world. And what I mean by that is the temptation to behave like the rest of of the world. And that is a big temptation. It is a big challenge, as we're going to find out, because it just doesn't automatically happen. In many ways, it is a gradual slope towards behaving and adopting perhaps the beliefs, behaviors, etc., that a good part of the world may do and may believe in. It isn't all of a sudden a light switch that, that happens immediately it oftentimes is a gradual slide into behaving like the world. And before you know it, we're also no longer distinguishable from the rest of the world. In fact, that's oftentimes what many non-Christians look at the church and see is that I don't see a difference between the way you all act and the way the rest of the world acts. I see just as much judgmentalism, hate, conflict, violence, all of those kinds of things in the church as I see in the world. So why in the world would I want to be a part of the church? Why in the world would I want to follow Jesus if what you are offering is no different than what the world offers? That is an enormous conviction for me as a pastor. It breaks my heart. What is it that we can offer the world is unbelievable. And yet the world sometimes can't see it because we live and believe no differently than the rest of the world. So what difference would it make for me to be a part of a church? Right? And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at a text in Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, in which I think Jesus addresses this very thing and calls this church out for what this church was doing. And not only that, offers what I think is not necessarily the full solution, but certainly a beginning, an important beginning of how we can uh, fight against that, how we can address that for us not to behave like the world. So this morning, if you want to, let's turn to, the, to, turn to your Bible, Revelation, back of the book, back of the book there, back of the, the last book of the Bible there, and we're going to be in chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, and I want to share some things out of this passage, and then I want to make some thoughts and applications to it 
that perhaps might be a little controversial. Okay? I'm just preparing you for this. My hope is, is it would cause us to think and not immediately close off. I may be wrong. By the way, and I'm just going to let you in um, a, a little bit of, of the curtain, behind the curtain scenes as pastors, okay? Oftentimes, what might be mistaken as coming from the pulpit is all truth. And I hope it is. But if I am real with myself, oftentimes, what comes from the pulpit is the best the pastor can discern of what the scripture is saying. Therefore, we need to, and this is what I'm encouraging you all to do, double check, trust but verify. <laughs> trust but verify. I'm just being honest with you, okay? I do not have the corner market on this, okay? I simply do not. So don't ever, not that you ever do, I consider myself the Rodney Dangerfield of pastors. <laughs> you all make sure that I remain that way, and I'm very, very grateful for it. But... <laughs> That you don't put me on a pedestal and mistake me for Jesus. I am not Jesus. I am not the one who has the corner market on his word. Only Jesus does. I am just doing the best I can to discern what I believe the passage is saying, and that's what I'm going to do here today. And you may disagree with me, and guess what? You can. That's fine. You will not be struck down because of it. Okay? I may be struck down because of it, but not you all. I have a greater responsibility because of that in my position here. So anyways, let's read what John communicates to this church, a message that Jesus gave to John to say, and it's this. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever think about that just just stop once in a while and listen to what the scriptures say sometimes it can be really convicting and I, my my sometimes i'm just easy to gloss over it just, this is jesus telling the church i know where you live i know where you live and it's actually more of a comfort uh where satan's throne is whoo not that the church is satan's throne but where they are is satan's throne Okay, yet you continue to cling to my name and you have not denied your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed in your city where Satan lives. That's a wonderful affirmation of this church. In other words, Jesus, this double-edged sword, and, and, and we know as a double-edged sword that this message that Jesus is giving can do one of two things or even both. It can encourage and, and it can also discipline. It can cut both ways. And what we start off here at the very beginning is an encouragement to this church that Jesus is giving. This church was located, again, in Turkey, um, where most of these churches, in fact, all of these churches that John is writing to reside in modern-day Turkey. And it was in the center, if you will, of perhaps some of the biggest pagan worship in the entire area here. And that's why, most likely, Jesus says, I know where you are. You are at Satan's throne. There is no other, perhaps, city in this area that is more dedicated to the pagan worship than this city. You are in a very, very tough area. 
is what Jesus is saying. I know where you live. It's not, a, it's not an accusatory way. It's understanding. Listen, I know where you are, and it's a very tough area where you are. I get it. Ministry and being a follower of me is incredibly difficult in this area. How difficult was it? Well, there were certain many pagan temples all around. Perhaps the biggest one, not only it was a temple to the emperor, not only was it a temple to other uh, gods, if you will, but perhaps the biggest one was a temple to Zeus. And, and there was a big throne there. And it was an opportunity for people to worship Zeus and believe he was the one kind of big God out there. And so it was incredibly um, filled with people who would come and worship Zeus and Athena and Dionysus and all of these other gods here in this city. And it was unbelievable. Not only that, this city was an incredibly important city for education, not only in this pagan worship, but also in other areas. In fact, it had a 200,000 volume library there. It was big. So Jesus understands the pressure that they are facing. It's incredible pressure. I mean, here's this little church worshiping Jesus while everyone else in this city most likely is worshiping these other gods. It's incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult area to be in. And Jesus understands that. And yet, he says this in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some people there who follow the teaching of Balaam, who instructed Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, and commit sexual immorality. So, uh, really interesting, right? Uh, perhaps these Christians, who were probably former Jews, understood what Jesus is saying to them because this is a Jewish history lesson here that Jesus is giving them. This goes all the way back to the time when Balak, who was a king, who saw, he was the king of Moab, and he saw the Israelites coming out, and they were large, and the Israelites were making all of these advances to take over the land, and the king, Balak, looked at him and said, oh man, this is not good, and so he hires a prophet by the name of Balaam, to go ahead and curse Israel. I want you to go ahead and curse Israel. Now, Balaam was a Jewish person. Why he ever agreed to this, who knows? Maybe the money was good, whatever else. So Balaam is hired to do one thing, curse Israel. So as a good prophet that he is, he goes to God and says, God, what is it that you want me to share with the people of Israel? Do you want me to curse them? And God says, no, I want you to bless them. So Balaam goes out there and he blesses the people of Israel. And Balak says, no, 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 that's not the message. I want you to curse them. He says, I, this is what God told me to say. And so he says, okay, I'll go back again. And he asks God again, what is the message you want me to say? I want you to bless them. So he comes back out and says it again. I, I'm, I, God blesses you. And Balak is getting very, very frustrated by this whole thing. And, and Balaam, we all know, as he was going one time, he had a donkey, right? He was on a donkey, and the donkey, for some reason, saw this angel in the middle of the road, and, and, and he was trying to avoid it. At one point, he wouldn't go, and then eventually he would go almost to the, off to the side there, and he's, he kind of crushed um, Balaam's you know, ankle there, and he starts beating the donkey. And God gives the donkey the ability to speak, and he does. You remember that story, right? The irony is, is that Balaam was probably being more of a donkey than the donkey was, <laughs> Right? But here's the thing, while Balaam would only bless Israel in accordance to what God shared, what Balaam did do was something that was even more nefarious. As he told King Balak, listen, I, I can't 
I can't do anything but what God tells me to do in the message that he has given me. But here's what I will tell you, is how to trip them up. Is how to get them to all of a sudden adopt your gods. How to get them to have God be angry with them. And here's how you do it. Have your women marry their men, and let's have their men marry your, your women. And in doing so, what will happen is eventually there'll be this kind of mixture of Judaism with the, the religion of the Moabites. And all of a sudden now, the Jewish people will be tempted to go ahead and worship their gods in appeasing their wives and their husbands and all that kind of stuff that was going on. And so that's what Balaam did, is he brought into Israel the opportunity, or rather the curse, more, more accurately, of being able to now corrupt the Israelite people into worshiping pagan gods. I've said this once, and I'll say it again, church. The biggest threats to us as a church, as well as to any, perhaps even the, Jude uh, the Jewish people, is almost always from inside. It is not from outside. If you fear the world, you're fearing the wrong thing. I'm just telling you that right now. Almost always, the biggest threat comes from within. Here's another point Jesus makes. In the same way, verse 15, there are also some among you who follow the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We saw this back in the first message two weeks ago. The Nicolaitans perhaps was started by one of the first deacons, one of the seven deacons who were appointed by the apostles to help with the widows who were being neglected. And what came out of this most likely was Christians who compromised their faith by practicing once again immorality and idolatry to avoid persecution of the surrounding area and of their families, of the, of the leaders, of the political leaders and otherwise, the religious leaders and, and otherwise. And so they began to do things for the wrong reasons. And because of this sect that had infiltrated them, they began not to trust outsiders. Once again, because of what was going on and the threats that were, they perceived outside, the church here began to no longer trust outsiders and those coming into the church. They became very cold towards others and did everything out of protection. Everyone who came into this body as a result of what was going on was suspect. And so all of a sudden now, you have these two threats. The problem was is that it came from within. It never came from outside. And it was corrupting their church. Before they knew it, they were kind of sliding into behaving more like the rest of the world. Jesus affirms, I believe, the fact that the biggest threats come from within. He says this in Matthew 15, verse 11. Jesus says, what defiles a person is not what goes into the mouth. Eat whatever you want. Eat whatever you want. It's not going to defile you. In other words, make you sinful, okay? Uh, it's just not. He says this, it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. It is always what's in that makes us broken and sinning and unworthy, if you will. It's, also, it, it's what's in that is our biggest threat to us and to also the church. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a phenomenal little book about how um, a demon training another demon how to, how to infiltrate the church and how to trip up followers, says this, indeed the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without 
signposts. It's not as though as we are falling and sliding more and more to behaving like the world that there are signs out there that says going the wrong way, look out, cliff ahead, watch out, turn back. There's nothing like that. It is simply a gradual slope. Before you know it, you look back and then all of a sudden we're acting just like the world. And we didn't even know it. That's what was in many ways happening to this church. And this is what Jesus offers as a start of a solution. Verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right? He offers the start of a solution. And that solution is to repent. And then he goes on and he says this. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone. And on that stone will be written a new name. And so no one can understand except the one who receives it. Interesting. Basically what Jesus is saying is if you repent, if you turn around, what I will give you is, is an unbelievable banquet that you will be able to share with me. And you'll be given a white stone, which oftentimes could mean several different things. One is a white stone was oftentimes used in a trial and you were given two stones. One was often black for guilty. One was white for innocent. And in this way, it could be that you were given the white stone that you will be innocent. You will be forgiven. Perhaps it also means oftentimes a white stone was used for admission into a banquet. And perhaps that this also can mean that as well. There is some discrepancy on that, but not much. So Jesus offers a solution here, the beginning of one, and that is repent. Repent, turn around, look at what's going on, and turn around, go the other way. Do a 180. Now, as I think about this, I came across another study, specifically about us as evangelicals, and we're evangelicals. We believe we hold to a biblical worldview. We, we ascribe to the fact that we believe that people ought to choose to come to know Jesus, that there is always two births oftentimes associated with us in life of Jesus. There's our physical birth, and then there's our spiritual birth. We oftentimes can ask each other, when did you come to accept Jesus? And oftentimes we can say, I accepted Jesus at this time in this place. This, these people were around, da, 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 da that we hold to some of these incredibly important things for us as evangelicals. And we believe and hold to, in many ways, try to a biblical worldview that the Bible ultimately is our source of how we are to act, of what we are to believe, etc., etc., etc. And we believe these things. And it shows, because here's another study that was done a few years ago. Evangelicals are different. Evangelicals, it says in this study, emerge as the group most likely to do each of the following. And it's this discuss spiritual matters with other people. Volunteer at a church or nonprofit organization. Uh, discuss political matters with other people. <laughs> discuss moral issues and conditions with others. Stop watching a television program because of its values or viewpoints. Go out of their way to encourage or compliment someone. Contact a political official. Uh, we are most likely not to view pornographic media, or even read horoscopes, or use tobacco products. That's great. We are also more likely to give generously and to serve. 
beautiful things we as evangelicals do because we are very much all about wanting to make sure we are doing everything in accordance with this wonderful book, the Bible. And I can almost imagine that if Jesus were here today in writing a letter to the church, the evangelical church today, that perhaps it might be a lot like in the spirit of the church in Pergamum. Oh, I know where you live. I know where you live. It isn't always easy. You are facing unbelievable pressures. And yet I want to compliment you because you are so faithful. You do so many things well. And you, you are earnest in wanting to follow me. And, and maybe for us, we might be tempted to think, well, we're doing pretty good, aren't we? Oh, Jesus loves me. This I know. Because the Bible tells me so, right? Ah, thank you, Jesus. I am loved. It, we, might, we might even not only think, man, this is wonderful to hear, we might even be tempted to think there's nothing wrong with us. We might even be tempted to think, boy, I, whew, I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to speak in the spirit of Pastor Wheezy. And when I ask her oftentimes how she's doing, she oftentimes responds the same way. I'm perfect. Right? We might be tempted to think the same thing. We're perfect. And then I could almost imagine Jesus saying the following, but, uh-oh, where's he going? I'm going here. But I have this against you. I have this against you. I have a few things against you. You have gone off and followed the way of the world in your quest for power. You have gone off in the way of the world for your quest of having power through political means and have committed political idolatry. Let me just be honest with you, brothers and sisters. There is no group in this country that has sought power and political influence more than evangelicals. There just hasn't. Evangelicals, among any other Christian group in our country, has sought more than anything else power, and specifically political power, more than any other group. And it's not for all bad reasons. We believe that, you know what, God has compelled us to share the gospel. We believe that because of our love for our country, that we don't want to see our country go the way of idol worship and idolatry and all those other things. We do not want to see our country go down in any sort of immorality or anything else. We want to, as Jesus, we believe, possibly says, we want to save our country. And so we naively believe that perhaps the best way for us to do that, or one of the most effective ways to do that, is to now all of a sudden get involved in a way of questing for power in which we now vote people into office otherwise, who regardless of whether or not they are truly Christians, if they hold the mantra that we believe that we want them to hold, and if they at least say, I'm open to it, we will vote for them in the hopes that we can now finally bring God's will to this country. And many of us may even believe that our country was founded on biblical principles and that many of our forefathers, if not all of them, were Christians. And we seek to do this. A lot of times, it's good, honest reasoning. We love people. We love Jesus. We love our country. And we want to see what's best for everybody. 
And here's the problem, is that in that pursuit, perhaps we have done the very thing we should not have done, and that we have made politics an idol. And the quest for power. It's called Christian nationalism in this country. And Christian nationalism, in short, is a movement wherein theological imagination is co-opted by state power. The two become one. In short, it is the belief that America and Christianity are the same thing. In other words, to be a, an American is to be Christian. Right? To be an American is to be Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you're not an American. can even go that far. And the role of government is to ensure that our country remains Christian. And as such, Christianity takes a special position and prominence in American society. Here's the problem. I don't think that's whatever our country was supposed to ever pursue. I say this as I have taught American history to high school kids. And I'll say it here. We are one of the few countries that do not have two things. We do not have an official language and we do not have an official religion. If some of you thought our official language was English, look it up. This, we do not in America have an official language. We certainly do not have an official religion. And some of us might be tempted to think that's a bad thing, Dan. We've got to have those things. And I would say, no, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's intentional. Let me explain why. And perhaps one of the reasons why is if I were to ask you today, what does a true English person look like? And you could probably say very, very clearly, well, they speak English and they're a member of the Church of England. It's the official church and the official language of England. What does it mean to be German? Well, to be German means that you speak German and that you're Lutheran. Oh, those are the two official things. What? Right? What does it mean to be French? Oh, to be French is you've got to speak French and you've got to be Catholic. Right? Because those are the two official things. To be a true Spanish person, you've got to speak Spanish and be Catholic. What does an American look like? Oh, um, what... what what religion does an American need to be to be an American? What, what language does an American need to speak in order to be American? Uh, nothing. Bingo. That's an asset. We do a better job in this country of assimilating people than any other country in this world. And that's a beautiful thing. Everyone is welcome. That's almost, if you want to talk about a Christian ideal, that's almost a Christian ideal. Everyone is welcome. And yet, in our quest for power, I believe we have lost our way as an evangelical church movement in this country. Listen, I am pro-life. I'm going to get a little controversial here. I believe in the life of the unborn child. Truly do. But if we're really serious about it, that was an issue that we were late to the game on. That was never part of the evangelical movement, ever, until 1978, when there were a few people who realized that they could get votes and influence and money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, if they played that issue to the hilt. And they did. I'm not saying that we were never pro-life. I am just saying that we were never specifically in this way, that issue. 
You can even look at early evangelicals who had very differing views about pro-life. And now it's almost become a litmus test for if we're really a Christian or not. Really? Is that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say, in order for you to be my followers, you have to be pro-life on the abortion issue? No. Does that mean that there can be people who are Christians who are pro-choice? Yep. Dan, I have a problem with that. It's your problem. It's not theirs. You go and reconcile that with Jesus. But don't ever say to that person, you're not a part of the Christianity family here because this is where you stand. As I look at our country today, and I look at the abortion issue, and it was overturned, and I'm great. States' rights, fine. Whatever way we want to distinguish that. And then all of a sudden, as evangelical Christians, where all of a sudden now there are amendments to state constitutions that are proposed to guarantee the right of an abortion to a woman, that we all of a sudden find that we are now on the outskirts again. That we all of a sudden find ourselves in the minority, it seems like, because how can it be that these states are voting in these amendments guaranteeing the right of abortion to women? And we cannot figure it out. I thought, I thought this was a Christian nation. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it's not. That's irrelevant. What I do know is this is that oftentimes in our pursuit at what we believe is good, and I believe this is a good cause, don't get me wrong, we oftentimes lose sight of Jesus along the way, and perhaps we have. And perhaps we have. And the irony is, as God is oftentimes used in Scripture, he has used non-Jewish, and even non, in this case, perhaps Christian entities, groups, otherwise, to once again show us we weren't acting like Jesus. I am grateful. Let me just tell you a story. My mom, when she was pregnant with me, she was in high school. She was urged to get an abortion. And grateful that she didn't. But here's the thing. I can't ever imagine being in a situation where I have to make that kind of decision. Brothers and sisters, and perhaps we might have lost our way that there isn't just one life involved here, there's two. And as a man, I have no, perhaps, perspective that I have ever thought that, you know what, if, if a woman chooses to have an abortion, not only is that morally wrong, and it maybe is, I don't know, Perhaps it is, depending upon what the situation is, but now that person should be charged for murder. When it is such a hardship to begin with. Is that pro-life consistent all the way through? I've seen in our evangelical movement that we are willing to compromise even our own beliefs in the quest for power believing things that are simply not true, electing people that have, in many ways, do not share our values or our beliefs. But rather, we have a symbiotic relationship in the hopes that if that person gets elected, we'll get what we want. Do you know what a symbiotic relationship ends, ends up doing in the end? 
killing both. Killing both. So Jesus offers start of a solution. Repent. And I love how an author and columnist and Christian conservative says this about what this could mean. He writes the following, and, and it's perhaps um, a, a kind of legend, but then I'll give you the actual story. The Times of London sent an inquiry to a number of writers asking the question, what's wrong with the world today? What's wrong with the world today? This was back in the early 1900s. The Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton responded succinctly and profoundly, Dear sirs, I am. Here's the real story. No less profound. In 1905, Chesterton wrote a much longer letter to the London Daily News, and that letter included these sentences. In one sense, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give, the, can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. As I mulled over these words, I was convicted. In light of what Jesus says to this church, repent. Because to me, the most important aspect of repenting is for me to admit I'm wrong. Is for me to admit I'm the problem. Is for me to admit that I'm the one who has had a hand in causing what is going on in this world today. I am the one who's wrong. It even had even more specific things in my life too to apply to. And maybe even in general for all of us. What's wrong with our work environment? Well, I'm wrong. I'm what's wrong with my work environment. What's wrong in my marriage? Well, I'm what's wrong in my marriage. What's wrong in my parenting? Well, I'm what's wrong in my parenting. What's wrong in my relationships with, each, with other people? Well, I'm what's wrong with my relationships with other people. What's wrong with the church today? I'm wrong with what's wrong with the church today. In other words, the necessary ingredient for repentance is to admit I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I am fallen and sinful and broken. And so the question is, are people inherently good? Perhaps the answer is no, but we're not beyond redeemable. I'm what's wrong. Why, what's wrong with our country today? I am. I'm what's wrong. That's the start of a solution. May not end up there, but it's perhaps where it needs to start. I'm what's wrong. And perhaps, church, if we're honest with ourselves today, if we look at what's going on, not only in our church, but in our world in general, in our country specifically and otherwise, in relationships and all of those wonderful things that we get to experience, and we wonder why what's wrong, perhaps we need to just be really honest and say, maybe I'm what's wrong. Maybe I'm what's wrong. That's the beginning of repentance. That's the beginning of a solution is collectively for us to come together and say, I'm what's wrong, Jesus. Forgive me. I'm what's wrong, 
with what's happening out here. Forgive me. It's got to start with us. It's got to start with us. That's what I love about the message here that I believe Jesus is giving to this church is he says, guess what? Here is a start. Repent. Admit. We got it wrong. We're fallen and broken, sinful people. And I think that's the mark of what makes us different in many ways from the world. Do you know what? I love King David, and King David was known as a man after God's own heart. And do you know what I think one of the best ways, examples that he was a man after God's own heart was not when all of a sudden he was writing these wonderful psalms and giving praise to God, and not when God was rescuing him from his enemies, including King Saul, but when he fell into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet over his sin, instead of kicking that prophet out, instead of denying what he did wrong, he completely repented, fell on his face, and said, Dear Lord, forgive me. I think that is one of the best marks of a person who's after God's own heart. So maybe this morning we need to repent, church. I've talked about it danced around it we know the lingo of it many of us if not all of us i hope have in some way have done it lord jesus when we came to accept him i am a sinner in need of you and of your salvation please come into my life and lead me church maybe we need to pray that again maybe we have lost our way and maybe we need to repent so this morning as i end this time would you be willing to pray with me that prayer? If you're not there yet, don't pray it. Please do not go through the motions. This is between you and Jesus and not anyone else. But perhaps we've lost our way. And so right now, let us start the healing. Let us start the work in fixing this. Let us start by admitting we're wrong. And let's repent. Join with me this morning in this prayer if you would like. Jesus, we are your church. We are your people. And I pray this morning, Jesus, that as you have given this message to this church in Turkey, there are so many things we are doing well. There are so many things, Jesus, that we, in our love for you and our desire to serve you and serve others, that we are doing well. And yet we realize, Jesus, we haven't gotten it all right. And yet, Jesus, we realize that we are not perfect. And yet, Jesus, we realize we have not yet arrived. And Jesus, where we have lost our way, whether it's political idolatry or even something else that we have allowed from within us or whatever else to come here, whether it's here at Summit Ridge or in the church in general. Father, we want to call that out this morning. And we want to admit that we were wrong. We want to admit that, Lord, we got it wrong. That in our zeal and our desire to serve you and to share your gospel, we realize that in perhaps in some ways we've acted just like the world to do it. Judgmentalism, coercion, maybe even hate 
and conflict have become perhaps some of the means by which this has been accomplished. And yet, Jesus, we admit that perhaps what we have done is simply compromised our witness of who you are to this world. Jesus, forgive us. We were wrong. Jesus, forgive me for getting at times caught up in these things. Forgive me, Jesus, for even maybe even remaining too silent. Forgive me, Jesus, when I have compromised my witness of who you are. I am wrong. Forgive me, Jesus. Forgive us. Bring us home. Show us again. Lead us again into who you are. And may we be the church that once again you have created us to be. Conduits of your mercy, your grace, and of your gospel message, Jesus. It's your holy and precious name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.